the second century early church father, Tertullian, famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In his day, the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire was continuing to increase and intensify. Christians were being thrown to wild beasts for entertainment. They were being tortured and put to death for refusing to worship the emperor. Tertullian said, the more you mow us down, the greater in number we spring up. Historians estimate that there were fewer than 10,000 Christians in the year 100, but by the year 250, that number was up to almost 2 million. This growth occurred during arguably the most unpopular time to call oneself a Christian. How can that be? How can you go from 10,000 to 2 million, that's 200 times, in 150 years of intense persecution? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The seed must die to bring forth the bountiful harvest. John gives this saying of Jesus right on the heels of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. Jesus and his disciples were going up to Jerusalem to attend his last Passover, where Christ would fulfill the Passover and show its true meaning. This entrance has the appearance of being the last high point in Jesus' public ministry among the people of Israel. Just four days before his bloody execution at the hands of the Romans, after being rejected by the Jews. Since Jesus had launched his public ministry just a few years prior, the crowds have been back and forth on what to think about Jesus. What do they believe about him? His disciples from the very beginning are confessing, we have found the Messiah, the Christ. He is the King of Israel. But others along the way are asking questions. Can this be the Christ? Does the Christ come from Galilee? Is this really him of whom the scriptures speak? We move from times where Jesus has to withdraw because he perceives that the people are about to come and take him by force and make him their king to other times where Jesus' teaching causes many to turn away from following him. His teaching's too hard. The Jewish leaders have been perplexed by him and have been seeking to kill him for some time. But he keeps dodging them and avoiding them. Some of the Jews are asking, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The Jews had been putting people out of the synagogue if they confess Jesus to be the Christ. We hear of secret confessors like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Indeed, we're told there are many of the authorities who believe in him, but they do not confess out of fear for the Pharisees. And now that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, things were really getting out of hand for the Pharisees. 
We're told many of the Jews believed after seeing or hearing about this sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In chapter 11, John tells us this. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then Caiaphas, we're told, who was the high priest that year, unknowingly prophesies. You know nothing at all, he says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. John adds his commentary to this. He says, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the Jewish leaders begin making their plans to kill Jesus. They even begin making plans to kill Lazarus. Since John says on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The life of Lazarus was a testimony to the true identity of Jesus, the Son of God. Now this is the immediate context for Jesus' final public entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This large crowd receives him as he's coming into Jerusalem. And the crowd, we were told, is made up of those who had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. And they continued to bear witness, John says. And we're told the reason why the crowd went to meet him there was that they had heard that he had done this sign, raising Lazarus from the dead. This man raises the dead. He must be the Christ. Just as we sang this morning using the words of Psalm 119, or Psalm 118, they proclaim concerning Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they call him the King of Israel. Using this messianic psalm, the crowd is now publicly confessing that Jesus is the Messiah and the rightful King of Israel. And notice Jesus is not calling them off. He's not running away or telling them to keep quiet. In fact, Jesus is apparently adding fuel to the fire by sending for the young donkey for him to ride in on, fulfilling the prophecy we read from Zechariah 9. Jesus is stirring up the pot right here in Jerusalem. He knew and the disciples knew that going to Jerusalem was a death wish. When Jesus mentions even going to nearby Bethany, just a couple of miles away, the disciples ask him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus replies, of course we're going. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Thomas then says, let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas didn't understand why Jesus would walk straight into this. But he knew that trouble awaited Jesus in Jerusalem. The Pharisees, of course, are wringing their hands at this crowd's grand reception of Jesus and their confession of him as 
king and Messiah. And in their exaggerated response, the Pharisees make yet another prophetic statement. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world wants to follow Jesus. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Now, while I don't doubt that the crowd was a significant number, weren't the Pharisees being a bit over the top and saying the whole world is going after him? John humorously points out that the Pharisees were not wrong to state it that way. The very next verse, John tells us that some Greeks came up to Philip asking to see Jesus. Gentile God-fearers who were there to worship at the feast are saying, Sir, we desire to see Jesus. The whole world has gone after him. The Greeks now desired him. John's already spoken of the children of God who are scattered abroad that Jesus intends to gather in. Jesus will go on to pray for his sheep from another fold that are to be brought in. These Gentiles seek the desire of the nations, as Haggai 2 puts it. They are a first fruit of the coming harvest. Greeks, the wise men, were seeking him at his birth. Now, just before his death, Greeks were seeking him yet again. The whole world has gone after him. John has been showing us all along that Jesus is the light who has come into the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. He's the Savior of the world who gives his flesh as bread for the life of the world. And now the whole world has gone after him. Jesus is the seed of Abraham who would bring blessing to the nations. That's been the plan all along. He's a light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. But in order to bring about this blessing to the whole world, he must first be the seed who dies in the earth. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This visit from the Greeks seems to function as a kind of trigger for Jesus to indicate that now is the time. Jesus says, my hour has come. The time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Christ was sent to the lost sheep of of the house of Israel first to bear witness But then they rejected him. It was time to complete the mission to be the savior of the world. And now for the first time, the Lord has declared that his hour has come. At Cana, he said to his mother at the wedding, my hour has not yet come. And during the middle of his public ministry, we read, no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. But here he announces that his hour has arrived the hour when he, as the Son of Man, would be glorified. His hour refers to the whole complex of events that will take up the rest of John's gospel, his trial, his death, his resurrection and ascension to the Father. His hour appears to all to be a downward spiral compared to the high point of the triumphal entry. 
He was lauded and received as a great king on Palm Sunday. But everyone scatters when Jesus is arrested. Even his closest friends deny him and desert him. When Pilate calls out to the crowd, Behold your king, the Jews respond with, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. What happened to the loud hosannas and the blessings on the king of Israel? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests say. Now this is all part of what Jesus calls his glorification. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. For Jesus, the triumphal entry was not the high point. The crucifixion was his lifting up, his glory. John says concerning the lifting up, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus being lifted up on a cross was his enthronement as the righteous king who lays his life down for the sheep. The crowds were not ready to follow the king down this path. The disciples were not ready to follow the king down this path. Once they realized where he was going, everyone scattered. They wanted the crown, but without the cross. Jesus said the way to glory was through the cross. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Though Jesus goes into the ground alone, he doesn't remain alone. Like the seed, he bears much fruit in his resurrection and draws all people to himself. Jesus' death was, of course, unique. He is the pure and spotless lamb who dies to take away the sin of the world. His death on behalf of the world is to make atonement, to reconcile us to the Father. His resurrection from the dead is the defeat of death and makes possible our resurrection from the dead. Paul calls Jesus the firstborn among many brothers. He's the first of the new creation harvest. Those who believe in him will be raised like him on the last day. Jesus goes first, but we follow after. The head goes first before the body. The bridegroom goes before the bride. In his teaching about the grain that must die to bring much fruit, Jesus is, of course, talking about himself. He has to die to bring about the resurrection fruit of many nations, to fulfill the promise to Abraham, to bring blessing to the nations. But Jesus also teaches his disciples that those who share in his life will follow him in this same pattern. Here's the next verse. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. His servants are to follow him by not clinging to their life, but by giving it away as he has done. They are to hate their life if they are to keep it. They are to follow Jesus where he has gone if they are to be his servants. Peter picks up this in our epistle lesson in 1 Peter 2. He says, For to this you have been called, 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Okay, Peter says that Christ is an example for us, and we are to follow in his steps. His path as the seed going into the ground and being raised to bear fruit is the pattern for us all. But again, we need to be clear here. Jesus Saying that Jesus is our example is not to say that Jesus showed us how to save ourselves. He's not saying, watch me do it first and then you try to do it. No, Peter continues, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Hey, Jesus' death uniquely changes things for us. It alone makes the way to glory possible for us. But that way includes the path of suffering that leads to glory. It's only possible for us because of what Christ has accomplished for us that we are able to die to sin and live to righteousness. It's only because he has borne our sins in his body on the tree, because he has healed us. Now that we live to righteousness, we can follow him and be where he is. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Christ has already been through suffering. Christ has already walked the road to Calvary and gone to the grave. He's not asking you to go somewhere he hasn't already been. He's already gone before us, and now he enables us to walk this path. Hebrews 2 says, For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's already been there. When we go there, he is right there waiting for us. Where I am, there will my servant be also. Hebrews 13 says this, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We are to go to him, to be with him where he is, to follow him in the path of laying our lives down. What kind of death does Jesus call us to if we are to follow him? Well, death to sin and death to self. We put to death the passions of the flesh. We crucify the old Adam and walk in newness of life. We put to death the self by hating our life in comparison to the kingdom. Jesus says hating life now is truly loving life. Loving life now is truly hating life. Anyone who loves his life is destroying it right now. But whoever gives up his life is saving it. Paul embodies this idea of losing life now in Philippians 3. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, Paul says, Christ is my life now. Christ is everything. Is your life fundamentally about what's in it for me? How do I get my way? How can I get more resources to benefit me? How can everybody serve me and my interests? Or is your life characterized by giving yourself away? Using up your time, your energy, your resources for the sake of others. We, of course, all have a tendency to pursue our own interests, our own projects, to look out for what is best for me. Jesus calls us to follow his lead and lay down our lives for the good and the life of others. As Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Pour out your life as a drink offering in service to Christ and his church. If you want to be great, become the servant of all. The way to be great is to serve. The way to gain is to lose. The way to get is to give away. Kids, the way to follow Jesus to triumph is not me first, me first, me first, mine, mine, mine. Adults, the way to follow Jesus to triumph is not me first, me first, me first, mine, mine, mine. The way to follow Jesus to triumph is my life for yours. My life for yours. We are to be conformed to the pattern and the image of Christ, to be like him, laying our lives down for others. Following Jesus as our example also means that we follow the way in which he suffered. Though Jesus knew he was called to lay his life down, he was not miserable and sour about it. Jesus didn't walk around like an Eeyore, always pessimistic about his trials and his suffering. Hebrews 11 says, For the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Okay, we're called to give ourselves away joyfully. Paul again says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We can do this joyfully because we know we have the honor of the Father awaiting us. We have the joy that is set before us. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We await glory on the other side of our suffering. Because we are in union with the triumphant king, all of our deaths, seeds buried in the ground, will give way to resurrection. This is certainly true of our physical death and future physical resurrection, but it also includes our little deaths, our little deaths, our figurative deaths throughout this life that we experience now. We can die to self, die to sin, die in hardships and suffering 
being assured that these two will bear fruit. Because we are in Christ, we know that these deaths are part of our glory because they give way to resurrection. They will lead to blessing and honor from our Father. This is true of all of our suffering for those who are in Christ. Whatever crosses the Lord has given you to bear, be assured, resurrection is waiting on the other side. No matter how dark and dismal it may seem, remember Christ has gone to the darkest depths. He's already there with you. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. Whatever difficult circumstances the Lord has given you to walk through, take heart. Resurrection and glory are waiting on the other side. You may not be called to die a martyr's death, but you are called to lay your life down as a servant of Christ. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If we abide in Christ and his word abides in us, we will bear much fruit. As we follow him, we will be with him where he is. Because Christ has gone before us, we can joyfully follow him wherever he leads. We can give ourselves away and pour out our lives knowing the Lord will bear fruit. And this will result in glory and honor from the Father. We can't lose on this path. We cannot lose. As we follow our triumphant king into Holy Week this week, let us pay close attention to the example he set for us, laying his life down for his friends and for the world, that we may follow in his steps to glory and honor. Behold the man. Behold the man. As we come to the table this morning, Christ gives us his body and blood for our joy and for our life. Christ has given his life to gather in those scattered abroad. He's gathered us in. We are his harvest, the the many grains ground to become one loaf. The whole world has gone after him. The great high king stoops to serve us at his table this morning to feed us his true food and his true drink. Here we see his great love on display. My life for yours. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.